Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF with your anchors, defense attorney Michael Popuck and former prosecutor and defense attorney Karen Friedman at Niffalo. Trying something new for a change. I'm going to spice up the intro a bit and keep it short and sweet so we can get right to the topics of the week. We're going to debate and analyze four top stories, all that hit within the last few days or even last few hours. First, developments in the Georgia election interference case, including can Chesbro getting permission to leave Georgia to cooperate with the feds and Fawny Willis making plea deal decisions about who else? Trump, Giuliani and Meadows. If you follow closely things that Karen Friedman Ignifolo says, that won't come as a surprise to you. Two, we'll talk about developments in week eight of the New York civil fraud case. It's all about materiality and intent as Trump puts on another Deutsche Bank witness and tries to have the monitor, former federal judge Barbara Jones, testify, presumably on his behalf, at the same time or a day later that she just reported today that Donald Trump and his organization moved $40 million of cash out of the bank accounts without letting her, the monitor, know about it. Probably not a good thing to do when you're trying to call the person, put him up on the stand. Three, Karen and I will talk about developments in the D.C. election interference case with Judge Chutkin keeping this case on track for trial in March as Trump files ad nauseum motion after motion to slow it down. And new disclosure, new disclosures have come out about a sort of a related issue in Mar-a-Lago and the prosecution there and which lawyer is now testifying against Donald Trump today. You need a scorecard keep track of all of Donald Trump's current and former lawyers and whether they testify before the grand jury, whether they're cooperating with the uh, Department of Justice or not. And then lastly, we'll talk about developments uh, returning to New York in the Stormy Daniels hush money cover up business record fraud case by the Manhattan DA's office. Where else would, would we be with Karen Friedman Kniffalo on the show that is still on the books to go to trial, we think, in March of 2024. But we'll get down to it. All this and so much more on the midweek edition of the Legal AF podcast, where we sit and analyze at the intersection of law, politics, and justice, so you don't have to. Karen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, I'm good, and I feel very confident. I feel confident when you're in that particular room of whatever room you're in. I like that room with those books and that bookcase. Thank you. It yes. makes me happy. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's interesting because you and I just we travel, we go. You know, we're we're doing things in different places, but we never miss our legal AF. So we have to do it wherever we are. So now I'm back in my normal place. So yes, happy to too. happy to do it. I'm in, good. I'm glad to see you in your normal place and your normal place here on Wednesdays midweek on the show. Let's get right into it. Let, let let's kick it off with something. I'll frame it. Turn it right over to you. You said. And I'll paraphrase, <laughs> I'm never good at quoting, three or four episodes ago, no way Fawny Willis, right, prosecutor to prosecutor, no way she's going to offer a plea deal to the following three people, if I remember correctly. Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and I think you said Meadows. Yes. So if you're playing Karen Free McNifolo bingo, Okay, you can now yell out bingo because that is the new reporting about the Fawny Willis and and who she is and who she is not more 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 uh, to the point going to offer a plea deal to take it from there, Karen. 
Yeah, so look, this wasn't something that anybody who's a former prosecutor could make that same guess. So uh, it, it wasn't that hard to, to kind of see that that's where they're going. And, and the reason is because when we, when we, as prosecutors, we, they, whatever, when we are deciding who to make a deal with, uh, you typically don't flip down, you flip up. And what that means is there's a hierarchy when you are prosecuting a group of people typically, right? There's typically, like if you think of the mafia or a violent gang or or any other sort of criminal enterprise, which the, she is prosecuting um, under the theory of RICO, which has to do with criminal enterprises, there's a hierarchy and a structure. And you've got people at varying levels of culpability. And whoever the upper echelons, the top people are, the ones that you're really looking to potentially uh, convict and hold responsible. And in this particular case in Georgia, it really looks like those are the ones that are most culpable. And so I think that it makes sense that, uh, that this is where we are and how we got here. I also think she could have drawn the line with, the, with some of the lawyers as well. I think Eastman and Chesborough, for example, example, could have been or could be on that list as well, because they're they're the enablers, the architects, whatever you want to call them, of this entire uh scheme to defraud the voters of Georgia uh, of their rightful elector or electors. And so I could see also them being on the list. But I think the reason she's deciding to get the lawyers out of the case, which is what what so far it seems like she has done, is to try to neutralize any advice of counsel defense and, and get them to cooperate because Trump has signaled that that's going to be one of his main defense that, look, I was just relying on my lawyers, you know, my really smart lawyers, they came out and they told me that this was okay. And that's going to be one of the defenses, right? I'm not a lawyer. How was I supposed to know? I rely on lawyers to tell me what to do. Just like he's just typical of what he's doing in his civil fraud case in New York, right? I relied on the accountants. Like he, he never wants to take responsibility for anything and always blames somebody else. So the, and, and the way this all seems to come out. So, so the Guardian, a, a reporter, Hugo Lowell, uh, is the one who broke this story. He's he's um, he's somebody who is a pretty good, really, I think, a really good reporter. And he broke the story that um, that it, she's not making offers to Trump, Meadows, and Giuliani. And how did we? Fig how did he figure it out, or how did people figure this out? Other than just it makes sense. And I think what I'm gleaning from the reporting is. There was a report by John Eastman. There was a a, um, a request from John Eastman, uh, one of Trump's former lawyers, who asked the judge McAfee to do this kind of strange divide up the case between two groups. You know, let Trump go by himself and let everybody else go in two separate groups. And you know, this way Trump can go at some other future time. You know, he's busy running for office and and he needs to to do that. So let's not worry about him and worry about security from the Secret Service, etc. I you know let's and I want my trial to end before I want it to be completed in 2024. I don't want it to go into 2025 the way. Fonnie Willis has suggested because she asked for an August of 2024 trial date and she uh, and and she said uh, it'll go into 2024. So Eastman said, look, I don't want that. I want to go sooner. 
And the reason I think that's significant is Fonnie Willis said to the judge when she said, you know, look, judge, I want an August trial date. And anyone who has gotten an offer, I'm going to give them a deadline of June 21st to take this offer or not. Because think about Anyone can plead guilty at any time in a criminal case, right? A defendant usually pleads not guilty, and then at some point they can decide to either plead guilty or go to trial. Every defendant has that right. But the whether or not to offer a plea or a deal or cooperation is 100% in the control of the prosecutor. The prosecutor decides by themselves, 100%, whether or not they're going to reduce the charge uh, for nothing or for an exchange for something. And what Fonnie Willis is saying, anyone who I've given a plea offer to, you have until June 21st to accept it. After that, it's plea to the charge or go to trial. And she wants to know, A, who, who are her witnesses going to be? Who is she going to trial against with, with all the defense? I think there's 14 people left. She's going to want, or 15 people left right now. You know, she'd ha they'd have to at least probably have two trials, to, but she's going to try to winnow it down further. And she said, and, and what Eastman said was, look, let's make all those dates even sooner, right? Let's move all those dates forward even more, not June 21st, let's make it even shorter so that we can all go to trial, et cetera. And I think that little kind of signal of him wanting to do this and moving the plea deadlines different, um, et cetera, I think that's how we know who got offers and who didn't. Because look, there's probably some kind of joint defense discussion. The defense attorneys are talking amongst themselves. And I'm sure that they said, hey, did you get an offer? Did you get an offer? Like they're sharing that information about who got what. And it's looking like Meadows, Trump, and Giuliani's lawyers had to sit there silently and be like, oh, we didn't get an offer. And that's how I think this is coming out. That's again, this is this is not this is me gleaning and reading tea leaves. Let's just be clear. But I think just given everything that's going on there, I think that's where that is coming from. And just one more thing before I turn it over to you, I still find Meadows to be the biggest head scratcher of all because I don't understand how he can both be at the same time somebody who's so seriously responsible that he's not even going to get a plea offer and it's plea to the charge and we're going to trial against in Georgia. And he's not even an unindicted co-conspirator in Jack Smith's case. It's just to me, like if you would think that Jack Smith would view him as seriously or as important or as, you know, he's at least an unindicted co-conspirator because it doesn't look like he's cooperating. So I don't know. I'm still, that's still the head scratcher for me, but, uh, but that's, that's my reading the tea leaves of everything that's, that's kind of going on in Georgia. With Meadows, I think I agree with you with the mismatch. I think it's a timing issue. I think at the time they brought the indictment, Meadows, they still held out hope that Meadows would cooperate even more than he was already cooperating to the limited immunity deal that it looks like he had. And then they have decided for various reasons since then not to do what they did in Mar-a-Lago, which is to bring a superseding indictment, which may have captured, no pun intended, caught Meadows but because of things that you've actually said, and we've said in past episodes of Legal AF, where they don't want to have anything on their side delaying the March date. Um, they didn't want to, they don't want to F with, to paraphrase the title of our show, they didn't want to F with the indictment um, while and let Donald Trump just shoot at that one and not 
kind of raise the issue. So I think it's more of a timing issue. And and, and the reporting is that it's also Fawny Willis signaling to everybody else who she'd like to get to settle. If you're waiting around and you think I'm going to settle out this case and plea out this case at the top um, and you're going to wait till the very end, don't do that because I'm not going to plead this case out. I'm going to try this case in the summer against these three guys and whoever else is left. So you're running out of time, folks, as on, on your flip-up um, metaphor to come in and talk to me. And then the new, the other thing I'll, I'll hit here briefly is that Ken Chesbro, speaking of attorneys, that Fonnie Willis has worked hard to kind of get out of the way and have them cooperate. Ch Ken Chesbro, the architect of the fake elector scheme, or what I call the one of the midwives giving birth to the scheme along with John Eastman, the constitutional half scholar, uh, is a convicted felon now because he pled guilty to one felony count in Georgia, but is fully cooperating. Interestingly, of all of the videos that were released to the media of the proffer, the cooperating testimony of Cindy Powell, Jenna Ellis, and, um, and Chesbro, the only one that didn't come out was Chesbro. So you got to think, I mean, there was already bad stuff against Donald Trump in those. And I know that I know that Willie, Flo uh, Mist, sorry, Mist, Misty Hampton, the Coffee County election supervisor's lawyer, is, is the one that admitted that he just he really leaked all of the videos. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. he he like I got a, I got a confession to make, Your Honor. Before you move on to the next person on the Zoom, I did it. Uh, we never could figure out why, but he didn't. Do, we were like, God, there's bad stuff in there against Trump. Every one of them says something really bad against Donald Trump. Why would he think he want that released? But he didn't release Chesbro. So you got to think Chesbro has got to be really bad. And he now is asked for permission because he is a convicted felon that is subject to the court's uh, control under conditions of release. And he's asked Judge McAfee to give him a, uh, a hall pass to go visit other states and the feds. Uh, and we, and this isn't a class trip, everybody. He's not going to Washington to go to the Smithsonian or check out the new museum. <laughs> He's going to talk to Jack Smith. He didn't say it in his papers, and the judge was like, where do I sign? One line, granted. And now he's going on a whistle-stop tour to Nevada, Arizona, to go talk to the attorney generals there about their fake elector investigations and his role in it, dumping on Donald Trump all along the way, and talking to the feds, talking to Jack Smith. We always said, and we said it certainly on the midweek edition, Karen, that the people that were cooperating with, with Fawny Willis are going to have their ticket punched because they're going to have to cooperate with Jack Smith for many, many reasons. <laughs> They've already proffered and they have a duty to, to tell the truth. And so the first one that looks like who needs to ask permission because he's a felon, Sidney Powell pled guilty to a misdemeanor. Jenna Ellis was a misdemeanor too, right, Karen? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the only felon is Chesbro. And yes. So he probably had the greater conditions that had to be modified in order to go do this. For all we know, Powell went too. Cindy Powell went too. For all we know, we just we just don't know that. Uh, She's a so, little too crazy for Jack Smith. I don't see him. I yeah. don't see Jack Smith putting her on. Maybe Jenna Ellis. But if you're Jack Smith, you want Ken Chesbro and John Eastman 1, to say to completely debunk this advice of counsel. But Eastman, and, and he's not going to get Eastman because Eastman is still out there drinking the Kool-Aid 
you know, like, I want to be tried. I don't have secret service. I'm burning through my wife's retirement money. And can't you try me quickly? I mean, I'm only barely paraphrasing what he filed with the court in Georgia. So we'll continue to follow developments in Georgia as Tawny Willis moves towards her August trial date. And who's going to be on that dance card? Who's who she's going to be trying? Um, we know Donald Trump's going to be there, but who else is going to join? Let's let's take a break from criminal and criminals. Um, and in the rest of our podcast, we'll next talk about the developments in the New York civil fraud case, including new Deutsche Bank witnesses that want to talk about how much, how excited they were to have Donald Trump be their customer. They're willing to just give him money hand over fist. I guess that's, they think that's supportive testimony for their defense. And uh, also that we just learned today from the monitor that she had to go look in the bank statements to figure out that $40 million was missing from the Trump organization while they've been under a court-appointed, court-ordered monitor. That's not a good thing. And then we'll turn to D.C. election interference and wrap it up with your old stomping grounds, the Manhattan DA's office, getting ready, maybe, for the Stormy Daniels hush money cover-up case. But first, one of my favorite points in the podcast, a word from our sponsors. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver-infused fabrics inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long. So you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than sheets used by some five-star hotels. Miracle sheets are the perfect gift for your spouse, friends, or family who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets. And since these come with three free towels, you get two gifts in one, just in time for the holidays. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash legalaf to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save over 40%. And if you use our promo legalaf at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash legalaf and use the code legalaf to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash legalaf to treat yourself, a friend, or loved one this holiday season. Now it's time for a word from our show sponsors, Highland Titles. Highland Titles sell a unique gift with a legal twist. In the Land Registration Act of 1979, lawmakers in Scotland legally defined a souvenir plot of land. This is a plot of land so small 
most often one square foot, that its value is solely commemorative or sentimental. So you can buy a square foot of Scotland for just 30 bucks. Why do people do that? Well, Scottish landowners are traditionally given the courtesy title of laird. The English translation is lord, and the female equivalent title is lady. Buying a plot of land from highlandtitles.com will enable you to legitimately style yourself as a lord or lady of the glen. You get a legal right to a plot of land you can visit at any time and a luxury gift pack too. The gift is so good they made it legal. Check it out at highlandtitles.com and use the discount code LEGAL25 to get 25% off your order. Welcome back, Lady Karen Freeman Ignifolo. By the way, I was reading the comments during the um, during the commercials, and there were people commenting on my books, and some people were like, it's not real, it's a background. It's real. And Go grab a book. It's real. And <laughs> some people were also commenting that, oh, they liked it better when I'm sitting in the corner versus so I, I moved my I moved my uh, chair and my desk to show everybody it's real. And now I'm in the now we did it in the corner. So. Well, first of all, as a close friend of yours, nobody puts KFA in the corner. For those that don't don't remember that movie, uh, that's a great movie. Dirty legal AF. I'll just leave dirty, it at that. Dirty all dancing. Right. <laughs> all right, let's get back to what's going on in the New York civil fraud case. Just everybody, I want to just we we do have new people that join, so I don't like to be we don't like to be repetitive, right? We like to be episodic and a serial at the same time in terms of building on each week's legal legal episode, legal study teachings. And so the judge did already rule twice. Early on in the case, that's why there's a monitor in place, that it was more likely than not that Donald Trump's organizations were committing persistent fraud, requiring that there be a monitor installed over them to keep an eye on all their books and records, finances, and bank accounts and all that. Then later, just recently, about seven weeks ago, on summary judgment, the judge found as to count one of the petition or the complaint by the New York Attorney General that it was more that it was more likely than not preponderance of the evidence that Trump and all the Trump entities, financial entities, were committing persistent fraud, what we call a standalone persistent fraud claim under Executive Law 63-12. And for that, you don't have to prove materiality or even intent. You can accidentally commit persistent fraud in New York as a business and still get shut down by the New York Attorney General in combination with the judge. But in order to go one step further and prove the other five counts that are remaining, that's the difference between what the judge already ruled and what's going on now. What's going on now is that the New York Attorney General has to prove both materiality, meaning it wasn't it wasn't just a small de minimis amount of money involved. It was something material to the decision making of somebody or a counterparty or stakeholder or lender or insurance company or whatever, and that there was an intent to do it. At the end of the day, I'm not sure it all matters because he could do under the first count that he already found on summary judgment, probably what he's going to do under all these counts in terms of the complete and total annihilation of the Trump organization and its assets. But we're here, we're along for the ride. And there's it's interesting. First part of the case went on for six, six weeks or so in the hands of the New York Attorney General, her team of valiant uh, lawyers. There's about 10 of them. They all took turns at putting on 25 witnesses thousands and thousands of exhibits 
pages of information, you know, incalculable <laughs> amounts of data that Judge Angoron and his principal law clerk, who sits right next to him, have to sift through in order as the trier of fact to render the decision. That's what we're watching. And now we're in week eight. And we heard uh, just this week that Donald Trump's coming back. He's going to come back for another who knows what. Uh, get in trouble again, find, be found in contempt again. Maybe we'll see Eric Trump come back. But right now they're in that part of the case. Uh, they're plotting through bringing in um, bankers. The primary lender for Donald Trump during all these years was Deutsche Bank. It isn't any longer that I want to touch him with a 10-foot pole, but it was for a long, long time. And I'm talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And so they've been putting on these bankers to say, we love Donald Trump, blowing kisses. Oh, you know, we gave him the biggest toaster we could find when he opened his account. We loved him. And we would have done anything for him and lent him any money. Well, that, But that's the banker. The banker is not making the loan. I got news for people who don't understand how banks work, like the witnesses that are testifying, not, not our audience. The banker's the front person. The loan gets made in the back by the loan committee and the underwriting committee who have, who have who set requirements, something like requirements. You can't just come in and say, oh, I'm Donald Trump, where's my money? Which is how they're making it sound. You have to have net worth of a certain amount. In this case, $2.5 billion. You have to have hundreds of millions of dollars of liquid assets and cash on hand. And you have to really have those things, not just say it. And that's where we're watching this hand-to-hand -hand combat between the New York Attorney General and these bankers. As the judge has made clear in most circumstances, you don't need a victim. I don't need a victim. I just need materiality that they would not have lent or, or it was a material to their decision to make the lending what the statement of financial condition looked like for the for years 2014 through 2021, yes or no. That's the only issue he's really trying to get to the bottom of. Um, so, Karen, why don't you comment now on these parade of witnesses already that ended on the before Thanksgiving and picked up now? And then why don't you touch on the what we learned about, uh, I did a hot take on it, but, but touch on it here, what we learned about the movement of $40 million of cash without, without not permission, but without reporting it to anybody. Yeah, I mean, look, they, they did put on a couple of these bankers and it's interesting because Look, we 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 got reporting and live tweeting from the courtroom, but we don't have transcripts, right? I, certainly, I didn't see any transcripts. You know, I, I read everything I could find and on people who were there about questions that were asked of these witnesses. And and so one of the witnesses that Trump's defense team called was this um, this Deutsche Bank private wealth employee, Rosemary uh, Vrablic. And she was talking about how in 2011, she was excited to go, they called it whale hunting, uh, which I guess is seeking a business relationship with a high net worth individual. Uh, Ivanka was a liaison, Don Jr. was a, a liaison, and they were very excited about having that having the trumps uh as a client wanted to meet the dad um at one point she said in 2014 i think that the families in the top 10 revenue generating names of asset wealth management etc cetera, etc cetera. um and you know it was great except what i didn't read or hear or see is the trump lawyers asking her the ultimate question 
basically, was it material? Did it matter? Did you rely on this? And you would think if you're calling them as a witness, you would know what they were going to say, and you'd be calling them to say something like that. And so the fact that they didn't ask, if they didn't, because I think if they did, and and she said, no, it didn't matter, I'm sure we would have heard that and, and read about it. Um, but it's just, I, I, I found that kind of a glaring omission. But then at the same time, of course, the prosecutor, or the, yeah, the prosecutor also didn't uh, ask that question either. And again, if I was sitting there, I'd wonder, okay, it wasn't asked, that must mean the answer is yes, of course, that would have mattered. And so I'm looking forward to reading more about it, maybe seeing the transcripts, because I, I really think that that if you're going to put these bankers on, the, as you just said, that's the ultimate question, you got to get to that ultimate question. And I, I think that the government did a great job at showing her uh, cross, during cross-examination certain emails, right? Like there was a, an email from one bank committee executive member, what you just said, how it's a committee that makes these decisions that basically said, you know, I support this transaction, but we need ironclad, full recourse under all circumstances. And, you know, this is sorry about that, but this is a requirement in private banking, which basically means we can seize your assets in the event of default. And, you know, so there are emails, it seems, to show that, right, that this did matter. But every it doesn't appear that anybody kind of ask that ultimate question. So so I thought that was kind of interesting. And, and you know, you're a very experienced civil practitioner. So I'd love to hear your thinking about that and why it wasn't done. Um, but as a, again, as just a trial lawyer, if it was my witness that I'm putting on and he was the Trump witness, I would have known, I'd know the answer to that, right? And I think I'd wanna find someone, they, they promised, right? They promised that they were gonna put on witnesses to say, we, that, that you're gonna hear from bankers that, say, that said, we would have done business no matter what, this didn't matter. I mean, just because she loved him as a client, you know, at the time, I don't think that really matters to this ultimate question. So, so I, they haven't delivered what they promised they were going to deliver yet. Because again, I'm fairly certain that, uh, that we would have heard about that if that was the case. And, um, and they also recalled uh, Patrick Bernie from the Trump <laughs> organization from the Trump organization as well um, to to the witness stand. So I look forward to hearing more about about what he said. Um, but so they, they make a lot of promises about what they're going to show. But so far, I don't think I think they have failed uh, to deliver that promise. And, and getting to the monitor, Barbara Jones, who's a former federal judge, um, she she actually believe it or not was the former i met her when she was the chief assistant uh at the manhattan da's office which was a job that i had many years later but when i was a young prosecutor in the 90s she was the chief assistant at the manhattan da's office and then she left there and ultimately became a federal judge and uh and then now is in private practice she's a very very smart very uh well respected um take no nonsense uh judge or former judge. And, and I wasn't surprised that they would have appointed her to this monitor position, but she, as a monitor, she has to periodically report to the court. And, and what she did, what we saw uh, today was um, that 
basically that uh, Donald Trump or that the Trump organization, you know, failed to report about $40 million worth of transactions. And they're required to report um, up to, I think it's 5 million, any, any transaction that's, that's $5 million uh, or more. And, you know, frankly, it's just very interesting that, that, you know, she says, oh, they failed to report and we're putting in heightened controls now. But that the whole thing, the way she said it was, was very much um, kind of gives them the benefit of the doubt as if it was a mistake. I don't know. I, I don't think the, the Trump individuals are very smart, but they're no dummies. They're scheming. These are scheming individuals who, this was not an oversight in my opinion. Um, and you know, some of the money went, it, it looks like went into escrow for E. Jean Carroll, which is great. I hope she gets her money too. So, so I found that, I thought that's what I thought was sort of interesting in this. And meanwhile, don't forget um, Popak, they wanted to call Barbara Jones to the stand to talk about how great they're doing. So I think that's interesting. The judge denied it, right? The judge said, no, we're not going to call, you're not going to call her to the stand. But what was she going to say? No, they're not great. <laughs> you know, they just, we, we found $40 million of unaccounted, you know, transferred money that's unaccounted for. So I don't know why they wanted to call her, you know, given, given that. Well, yeah, let me, let me, let me see what I can comment on there. That's, that makes it, makes an interesting point because you covered a lot. The, um, Barbara Jones, they hoped would, and I, I talked to legal AF people about this, having been involved in receivers, receiverships and monitors before. It's sort of weird not to call the receiver the monitor, even though the case isn't about receivership or what she's monitoring, if they think that she's going to have some helpful testimony about the operation of the company, inconsistent with the view that's been painted that it is a persistent, fraudulent company. The problem with that is that she was only hired in 2022, and the case is about all the dates before that. So the most that she could ever say is, assuming this is true, the most she could ever say is, since she's been there, she hasn't observed anything that would rise to the level of persistent fraud, and she's been watching for it. But that doesn't mean that in the 2014, uh, 2014 or 2021 time period about the statement of financial conditions and the assets, which is what this case is about, that's the fraud. The fraud is baked into the statement of financial conditions for Donald Trump that he signed and endorsed uh, and participated in the rendering of that have inflated his assets to, to render him a triple billionaire instead of the single billionaire that he probably was at any given time because he had to get over certain hurdles by the bank in order to borrow the money and, and do all the rest. So Barbara Jones, I don't think would have been very helpful, although I was a slightly, only slightly surprised that Judge Angoran didn't allow her to be testified, allow her to testify, both finding that the request to, to have her testify by the Trump group was late and that she was an arm or an officer of the court serving in an independent role and he wasn't going to allow her to take the stand, found it to be irrelevant. I think you had a good comment in one of our prep sessions um, about him drawing a line so it wouldn't be a slippery slope to them trying to call the principal law clerk, right? To get on the stand. Didn't, didn't, wasn't that one of your comments when we were prepping? Uh, maybe. Well, somebody know. made it. Somebody, somebody made it. One of the I'll leaders. Take, I'll, take, I'll take credit for yeah, somebody. One of, the lead, one of the leaders of Legal AF, we were texting back and forth, and that's what we do. When we see new, when we see new information, um, our producer just said, Salty said it. No, I don't. Maybe Salty said it. I bet Salty, Salty said it. Salty, did you say it? 
I'm looking at my chat. Okay, I didn't think so. <laughs> but you know, you know, you've you've gotten such an education over the last two and a half years in legal AF. You could have said it. Uh, <laughs> so um, that you know, he doesn't want the principal law clerk being called on the stand. I mean, look, and we'll we'll get to the D.C. election interference case there. But buried in a recent motion, I just did a hot take on it, is um, a line in there that says. Of course, this is from Trump, of course, senior Department of Justice leadership, Merrick Garland, Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, Jack Smith, will be witnesses in our case. In what case, Karen, in your 30 years, is the prosecutor, unless there's a prosecutorial abuse case, which therefore the indictment gets dismissed anyway, does the prosecutor, does the defense gets to call the prosecution to the stand? No. Yeah. So, well, no, I don't know. Right, so, I, I've been called to. Right. I've had to do it. Talk so about the, it. That's well, what I want to hear. Tell me. Yeah. About it. So, this is the thing. Prosecutors, <laughs> the, the number one, one of the number one rules of being a prosecutor is don't make yourself a witness because you don't want to be called to the stand. So, for example, if we would take a statement from somebody, you'd never do it alone, even if it's recorded. You would always have someone there because you need to be able to put someone on the stand other than you. And so you try not, and so like when, even when you talk to witnesses, right? And, and if they change their story, like say you're talking to a witness and you, and you get this whole, I always had a paralegal with me or somebody taking notes because otherwise if, if they change their story or they flip or something happens, I don't wanna get myself off the case and now have to be a witness. So it does, it's, it's rare <laughs> and, it doesn't happen often, but we definitely, it's something you have to be somewhat um, concerned about. And I've even had to put a second seat on a case before during a trial so that in case I was called as a witness, I would, I would, you know, have to have to do that. But, you know, look, you also, it's, it's complicated in front of a jury too, but it's possible. But I, I'm sure Jack Smith and Lisa Monaco, who are the best there is, frankly, uh, did not make themselves witnesses. I mean, it's kind of prosecution 101, you know, so I'm, I'm not worried that there's there's anything that they could be required to be te to testify yeah. and be called uh, to the stand. I, I and that's and, and that look at, you know, you always have to read, read these different things and piece it all together here on Legal AF. And so I think that could have been one of the reasons Angoran was like, no, you're not doing the monitor. You're not putting Barbara Jones on pass, hard pass. What else do you have in terms of witnesses today? And that's what we're watching. In terms of answering your earlier question, why are they putting these people on? Or in the chat, I saw, why is Trump coming back? Why not? I mean, from a Trump perspective, he only got to testify in response to questions that were cooked up by, I'm going to say cooked, cooked up by the, the, the attorney general, right? They were their cross-examination questions. Now he gets to answer softball after softball. We saw what happened the last time he got on the stand. It was a whole bunch of pontificating and soapbox and speechifying that had nothing to do with answering the question, which led the judge to say, quite rightly, which now infamously, I'm not here to hear him talk. I'm here to hear him answer questions. So we'll just see another version of that because it'll suck the air out of the room and he'll he'll win the news cycle that day and he'll raise another half a million dollars or whatever it is. So that's the reason why for that. To answer another question in the chat, will they get penalized for the $40 million being transferred? No, because the, it looks like from the letter writing, which as Karen, you pointed out, is very diplomatic to say the least, it, although I think there's a twist here. It says in her report on her letterhead, the judge, the former judge, 
that after she had figured out that 40 million had left the building, had left the bank by looking at the bank statement, she pointed it out to the other side, to the Trumps. They came back and talked to her about it, told her it was for putting up the, I think it's to put the uh, into the court registry, the five and a half million dollars for uh, the, the the appeal bond for um, E. Jean Carroll. And then I didn't even know Donald Trump paid this much in taxes, but like 29. I saw like, that. Well, yeah. I was like, he pays taxes? <laughs> million dollars in taxes. Yeah. I was shocked by that number. But, and she said, you know, wrapped him on the knuckles, like, don't ever do that again. You know, it's $5 million. And that, and it's, and to be clear, she's a monitor. She's not an approver. She didn't have to approve the transactions. They could do whatever they want. They want to like, blow the money on who knows what she'll just write it down dutifully they blew five hundred thousand yeah what's a monitor will you tell that's people it. yeah the, mo is the monitor is what it sounds like she has to report the thought process is by having somebody stand over you you will do less fraud <laughs> and she because she will be able to report it so she's able to peer in transparently to all of the financial records in real time at any time at, at, and be able to demand reports be made to her uh, from the accounting system, accounting ledgers, uh, and bank accounts, and and then she's reconciling. She's got a whole team. It's not just Barbara Jones. Believe me, that that's a great gig if you and I could get it. She's billing five million a month to the Trump Organization for this monitorship. I am sure she's got 15, 20 people in paralegals working this thing, reconciling bank statements against internal accounting. But all she's doing is reporting today, $3 million got spent to upkeep of a jet, a private yacht to pay off, uh, you know, Ivanka's student loans, whatever it is. So what's the heightened reporting that now okay. she's. And this is where I think the twist comes in. So in it, because she's got to do her job, too, and she can't act like it was no big deal. So it looks like they had a conversation, the Trump side and the monitor, which the monitor reprimanded them and said, you better agree to something because I got to go to the judge with something. So they agreed, the Trump organization agreed to heightened monitoring without definition, which apparently I don't even know what it means. And it's not defined in her report, which is where, sorry, I got a noisy. Wow. Can people hear that? Streets of New York, ladies and gentlemen, real time, 842 PM. <laughs> I would normally, you know, when I do a hot take, I wait for that to end, but we got to keep going. So in the what's going to happen is she's not a judge. She's a former judge. And so the judge, I think, is going to have to update his amend his order to recognize, make a finding about this. And then he'll have to decide whether this enhanced, pardon me, this enhanced monitoring that she's agreed to is sufficient or he's sufficiently pissed off that he's going to impose something else in terms of a sanction or a penalty. So I guess it's a long-winded way, roundabout way to answer the question in the chat. Could there be a penalty associated with the 40 million? It looks like the monitor doesn't think so, but the judge could. And this judge <laughs> and Goron, I don't think he's going to be happy that $40 million got moved without the monitor knowing about it. And she had to catch him in the act. So, you know, uh, I think I think we've covered that. Anything else you want to add on the New York case? Then we'll move on to uh, no, DC. Not, yeah, so not. we're going to talk in the remainder of the podcast about the DC election interference case and all the filings Donald Trump has made and the new rulings that that uh, Judge Chutkin has made. And um, you know, even Thanksgiving was no holiday. Ben and I reported it on Saturday about all the filings related to the gag order, which we're still waiting for the three judge panel there. To rule, salty. We got a ruling in the gag order for tonight. 
Okay, thank you, Salty. Salty wrote no. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and we'll also we'll end it with uh, returning to your old stomping grounds, the Manhattan DA's office. Speaking of law and order, Karen, you'll tell people. You'll tell people why I'm saying that at the end. Okay. Uh, but we'll do all of that. But first, my second most favorite point in the podcast, another break for our sponsors. This holiday season, you might be looking for nutritious, convenient meals to keep you energized on jam-packed days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service, can help you fuel up fast for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. Too busy with holiday plans to cook but want to make sure you're eating well? With Factor, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat and enjoy. Skip the stress of meal prepping over the holidays with Factor. Choose from more than 35 weekly flavor-packed fresh, never frozen meals that support a healthy lifestyle and meet your meal preferences. All delivered right to your door and ready to eat in two minutes. Level up with Gourmet Plus options, prepared to perfection by chefs and ready to eat in record time. Enjoy premium ingredients like broccolini, leeks, truffle butter, and asparagus. Looking for calorie-conscious options over the holidays that also taste great? Try delicious dietitian-approved calorie-smart meals with around 550 calories or less per serving. Need an extra boost to support your wellness goals and feel your best during the holidays? Try Protein Plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. Enjoy extra convenience any time of day with an assortment of more than 45 add-ons to suit various preferences and tastes. Choose from breakfast items like our delicious apple cinnamon pancakes, bacon and cheddar egg bites and potato bacon and egg breakfast skillet. Or for an easy wellness boost, try refreshing beverage options like cold-pressed juices, shakes, and smoothies. This November, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered to your door, ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash LegalAF50 and use code LegalAF50 to get 50% off. That's code LegalAF50 at Factormeals.com slash LegalAF50 to get 50% off. If you're like me, morning coffee, non-negotiable. But I was tired of either waiting in line for an overpriced cup or settling for gritty, bitter coffee at home. Now I've switched to using AeroPress and I'm never going back. It's so easy and convenient and incredibly unique. I never knew coffee at home could taste this good. AeroPress is like a French press, only better. It's the only press that uses a patented 3-in-1 brew technology, combining the best of several brew methods into one portable device for a completely unique and delicious flavor profile. Smooth, rich, and full-bodied, without the bitterness and grit found in other presses. And as a bonus, AeroPress can brew thousands of recipes. AeroPress travels better than others too. It's compact and incredibly durable. That means you'll never have to endure terrible coffee at the hotel, on the job, or on an adventure again. It brews and cleans in less than two minutes. Just add medium fine coffee grounds, pour in hot water, stir for five seconds, brew for 30 seconds, then press into your favorite mug and enjoy. There's a reason why AeroPress is the barista's favorite home brewing tool. AeroPress is the best reviewed coffee press on the planet with more than 55,000 five-star reviews. Thoughtful, 
proven at under 50 bucks, AeroPress is the perfect gift or stocking stuffer for every coffee lover in your life this holiday season. Don't settle for less than the best. They'll love it. AeroPress is shockingly affordable, less than 50 bucks. And we've got an incredible offer for our audience. Visit AeroPress.com slash LegalIF. That's A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash LegalIF to save up to 20%. That's AeroPress.com slash LegalIF to save up to 20%. It's time to ditch the drive through toss the French press, and say yes to better mornings, fueled by better coffee. AeroPress ships to the USA and over 60 countries around the world. And we thank AeroPress for sponsoring our show. And speaking of our show, we're back to Legal AF Podcast Midweek. And now we're going to turn to the D.C. election interference case with Judge Chutkin. Karen, uh, do you want to give like an overview of of the recent rulings with Judge Chutkin on the Jan 6th issue and some things that you you thought were interesting in some of the new filings by Donald Trump? Particularly, did you get a chance to read the one about uh, his attempts to expand the definition of the prosecution team for discovery purposes? I I definitely read it, but I'm not sure I know what referring to. That's all right. I did a hot take on that one. <laughs> Just do the ones that you that you found to be really interesting about what Donald Trump's new positioning is, and then some rulings by uh, Tanya Chutkin, Judge Chutkin, to keep the case on track for March. Yeah, look, there's a lot going on in the case, and a lot of filings, a lot of legal filings, decisions, things that we're waiting for, and it's hard to keep track of, actually. Um, so thank, thank God you do so many hot takes on so many issues that we can uh, keep up with them all, and I'm trying to do more of them as well. And uh, there, you know, there's been a couple of there were two motions that that the defendant made that are not related, but similar. And and one of them was a motion to compel a, for a subpoena. Uh, it's a Rule 17C subpoena for documents. And really what he's doing is he's looking for documents from the archives, from the clerk of the house, the committee of the house of, on the Jan 6 select committee, you know, the, 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 the people who took over the select committee um, and, and certain individuals who are, you know, representatives, uh, Loudermilk and, Tom, and, and Benny Thompson of the house, as well as um, other individuals, including the general counsel for the Department of Homeland Security, and they, they want documents, right? And, and they're looking for all sorts of, of documents that are in addition to the discovery that they already got. And interestingly, you a, a criminal defendant is able to subpoena records, right? And to subpoena documents. But it's a very it's very different in a criminal case versus a civil case. You know, civil discovery and civil subpoenas is very broad. In a criminal case, it has to be very narrow and targeted and specific, has to be relevant to your defense. It has to be um, uh, admissible, and you have to be very specific what you're looking for. And 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 this motion to compel discovery that he filed was essentially saying, look, the select committee, the Jan 6 committee, they compiled this huge archive of information, and you know there was a there was a, a letter that um, from Representative Barry Loudermilk, who was the chair of the oversight committee, who said that the select committee 
didn't transfer all the records to them, that they got certain things, but not all of them, that, that they, they claimed publicly that they accumulated four terabytes worth of materials, but, they, uh, but the committee only received 2.5 terabytes. Therefore, there must be missing, uh, missing videos. There was also a letter, another letter, um, saying that they loaned some records to the White House Special Counsel's Office and the Department of uh, Homeland Security as well. And, and so Trump's saying, I want that too, right? I want all of this stuff. Like They're, they're really just looking uh, for information. And what he basically said was in his papers that Rule 17C allows the defense to subpoena these documents. And, you know, as long as they are produced before they go to the court, you know, and then the court gives them to the defense. And that's under U.S. versus Nixon. And it's important for an accused to be able to secure evidence that might be favorable to them. Uh, and they have a right to this information. And this is all relevant. Right. So so think about what they're asking for. They're saying we got this amount of information, but we know there's more out there. So we want it all to see what's there, right? And that's that's what they're looking for. However, uh, the judge already denied this and basically said rule 17C uh, of the federal rules of criminal procedure are is not a, it's not for discovery, right? What this is instead is to expedite things before trial so you can inspect material ahead of time it can't be a fishing expedition. And it, there's a limitation on the discovery that you can get. And, and Rule 17C requires a defendant to clear three hurdles. It has to be relevant, it has to be admissible, and you have to be specific. And essentially at the end of the day, what he was asking for is just way too broad and saying there are missing materials that just doesn't cut it. That's not enough. And, and you have to be more specific about what you're looking for. You have to at least make an effort to say, I'm looking for documents that would tend to show something or that may say something specific because this is my defense. Um, and but he doesn't even make an effort to do this, right? He he's looking for videos that he wants to use uh, for. Th this is the one area, by the way, that I'm not sure I 100% agree with the judge, and that's that doesn't always happen to me because I typically agree with this judge. One of the things he was asking for was videos, okay? And th this one, this particular re request is um, apparently Jack Smith uh, transcribed any videos of any witness who's going to be testifying at trial. So so J we know that the Jan 6 committee took videos of many individuals, right? And um and and they played some of the videos, some of the video, you know, or snippets of the videos and and Jack Smith has all of those. And what they did was they transcribed them all and turned those over to Trump and the defense as part of discovery because they're prior witness statements, which they have to do. And, but Trump wants the actual videos themselves. And uh, Tanya Chutkin, the judge, actually denied that and said, look, the videos which he wants to use for impeachment purposes, um, 
he already has those transcripts and the defendant provides no basis for concluding that the video recordings contain any impeachment evidence, like things that go to credibility because credibility is always important. And he has the transcripts and you can't merely seek to examine general categories of documents with the hope that they contain helpful information. But the reason I'm not sure I agree with this is, you know, what about the best, there's something called the best evidence rule in, um, in, criminal law. You know, you're supposed to be able to, like transcripts aren't as good as the videos that they show. The best evidence rule is like you, what's admissible is originals, you know, not photocopies, or it's like the best evidence of something, you know, the best version of something, the, the most original of it. And I just think that, look, you know, yes, there are these written, this written, um, transcripts, but look, you, you don't see in a transcript, you know, demeanor and tone and expression, or if somebody's eyes are looking all over the place, and they're, they're not really wanting to, you know, answer a question. And those are all things that when you're looking at credibility, that that you would do, you know, and, and I guess, I, I think, I think, you know, Judge Chutkin kind of put a carrot out there for Trump and said, look, if this is something you want, you have to at least make an effort. You have to give some reason why you believe the recordings are better than the transcripts. And they don't even make an attempt. So I bet they amend it, because that shouldn't be too hard to do. It should be fairly easy for them to say, look, the recordings obviously are better than a cold transcript and credibility is an issue. I just think they didn't spell it out. So. I don't know. I think in that particular instance, I think they're going to get those videos of the witnesses who will be testifying. Um, I don't know. So that that I found that motion and that decision again. I, I agreed with everything she said, but that one little thing. I think that I think they should get the videos and probably will eventually. The next motion. Do you, you want to comment on that before I go to the next motion? No, I think you covered it well. So the. <laughs> Thank you, Popak. Uh, <laughs> by, by the way, I don't want our chat to, to explode. I was not being condescending. I agreed that I thought that Karen, my partner, covered it well. I didn't think it was, No, I don't I, think. No, you never do, and I never do. But people watching us, sometimes we talk in code, like, oh, Popak cut off Karen. Karen, Karen cut off Popak. Nobody's cutting off anybody. <laughs> We're having a having a cup of coffee, having a conversation, hopefully mildly interesting. And I was complimenting my partner on covering something. I had, when I have nothing to add, <laughs> no value added, I don't need to say anything. Well, thank you for the compliment, Popa. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so there's another motion that, that has not been decided. Um, uh, and this was a motion um, basically to compel discovery. And so the difference between the, what I just said, which was a subpoena, that's a motion to compel subpoena to third parties, right? To House of Representatives, Congress, the archives. Motion to compel discovery is a motion to compel Jack Smith to give more information to, to Trump. So that's kind of the difference. He wants more discovery from the special counsel. And the motion to compel discovery was couched in terms of, uh, there's Brady, Jiglio, and Jenks material. And people are saying, what is that? So Brady material is anything that tends to exculpate or is favorable to, um, or tends to support the defense, right? So that's what Brady material is. Jiglio or Jilio material, 
different people pronounce it differently, uh, is, and Jenks material is impeachment material. Anything that, that can be used, well, Gilio is impeachment material. Anything that can be used to impeach a witness. So it's not necessarily like prior, you know, things that exculpate you or things that tend to, um, to, um, to help your case some way or help your defense, but something you could use to impeach a witness like, um, you know, the prosecutor, you know, bought, you know, bought them, uh, you know, moved them to a new apartment and because of safety reasons, you know, you could, they could make an argument that that's something that was to curry favor with, um, with the prosecution and, you know, anything like that. It's, it's like, it's like anything that you can use to impeach a witness. And then Jenks material is, is just discovery. It's just prior statements. It's things that you're entitled to. Um, and so they, that's what they couched all this in terms of. And, and this motion was basically saying, we think there's all sorts of stuff out there. You know, the, the indictment, Jack Smith in the indictment said that, you know, that, that Donald Trump is responsible for the events of January 6th, right? Okay, if you're going to hold him responsible for it, you have to then, and that's in the indictment, I want every single thing you have in your possession of witnesses who've said he's not, right? Anything that that says otherwise, whether you credit or not, it's not up to you, prosecutor, to make a decision about whether some someone's credible or whether it helps the defense or not. I want anything about that. I want to know about informants or undercovers who may have infiltrated the group. You know, that's something that I would say is also um, impeachable or or Brady material. Um, I didn't trust the election results, right? I thought there was political bias in the decision making of government officials. So I want anything that that goes towards that. I mean, he's really looking for a ton of information. And the other thing is, is, you know, the he throws in in Smith, Jack Smith's face that he said in the indictment that whether Trump believed the election was stolen is a matter for trial, right? And he's and Trump's lawyer is saying, I agree with that. I agree with Jack Smith when he says it's a matter for the trial. Therefore, I want everything that could show that I had a good faith basis for believing that I won the I won the election. And the reason that little section bothers me is is um I don't think him thinking he, or even having a good faith, I, if he believed he won the election or that there was fraud in the election, that's not an element of any of the crimes, right? You know, I might believe that the bank owes me money and but they they don't want to give it to me. I might have a good faith belief that it's mine. I can't go in there and steal it. I can't hold a gun up and go commit a bank robbery because I have a good faith basis that they're holding my money. So I, I to me, I don't think that's an element of the crime. But you know, the fact that they've said this now opens it up to because now they're going to litigate this issue at trial. It opens it up to now Jack Smith is going to have to provide absolutely everything that is in his possession that helps Trump prove that he believed that he won the trial. And so so this is going to be this hasn't been ruled on yet. Um, but again, the, the, that's the problem with this, a talking in, an indictment that's a speaking indictment or a talking indictment. You're not just having a bare bones, you know, elements of the crime with a few facts. They put lots of stuff in there. And again, that makes this, you know, an issue that is now relevant, part of the indictment. And the, and the defense can say, I want things that go towards 
you know, that you have in your possession that goes towards supporting my side. So for example, the indictment says things like there's an, there was a national atmosphere, right? Or that, and the office's perceptions of public faith, you know, in the election, you know, that's, he, that's in the indictment. So they're saying, so, okay, great. We want everything that, that's out there on that. Or, you know, that there was foreign influence uh, findings relating to the 2016 election and the Trump issued an executive order uh, instructing the director of national intelligence to assess this, right? I want all those reports. I want that because that, that'll go towards my good faith belief that the election was, was, was stolen from me and that there was fraud. And it's not for the prosecutor to decide whether or not any of these defenses have merit. They're putting it out there that these are, these are their defenses. And he's, it's clear that Donald Trump is going to relitigate what he has relitigate what he has litigated already in the courts that there was fraud in the election that he believed it and he's going to look for absolutely anything he can uh, to prove that or to show that or to show that he had that belief in good faith and therefore he he wasn't trying to do anything other than question it because look at all the stuff that's out there so so this I don't like this motion um, it'll be interesting to see. Um, how how Jack Smith responds and what the judge ultimately ultimately says about it. So my two takeaways on the motions that have been filed is there's two things missing. Well, there's one thing missing and one thing horribly conflated by Donald Trump that I don't think will get past uh, Tanya Chutkin, the judge. First thing is he doesn't carry his burden in any of these motions to demonstrate that um, any of this information exists. Just listing in a motion practice all of the major agencies of our federal government and all of the lawyers who draw a paycheck from the federal government and suggest that maybe somewhere, if you let me in judge to their, their filing cabinets, electronic or real, I'll find something that'll help me in the case. That Once the government has produced what they've produced under any of these cases, somebody in the chat said, why do legal cases, why, why does the law have such weird jargon? Because it's usually named after a case and you don't have any um, ability to pick your case. If the case makes that precedent, that's the name. That's that's what we refer to that concept as, as I used to joke, and it's true. In Florida, the leading case on the issue of personal jurisdiction over a person is called Venetian salami. Not kidding. So you got to stand up in court and say, well, judge, under the Venetian salami standard, when I first moved there, I was like, I have to say Venetian salami out loud? That sounds ridiculous. Um, but you just, you're just you stuck with it, whatever the name is. That's why we all the things that Karen referenced are all names of cases, you know, Brady, Jiglio, and all of that. So I don't think they've carried their burden. I think you've done a good job outlining the, 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 the lack of connective tissue between the things that they say may exist and any argument that it really does exist. And the other is this conflation. This is Donald Trump until he made his filings and three years later and got his third round of lawyers has always argued that the and the bit that that the big for him the big lie, the fraud is there was fraud in the election that was outcome determinative, at the ballot box, through software, through hardware, through stuffed ballot boxes, through dead people voting, at the ballot box. That's the fraud, not outside influence. Unless the outside influence by Iran, Iran, China, Venezuela, Russia, India, and the like is causing votes to flip in the box, 
The fact that there is and has been for decades attempts by foreign uh, powers and um, foreign enemies of our state and state actors to try to put Americans at each other's throat and cause discord and make them vote a certain direction, manipulated through social media and disinformation campaigns, that's been going on. I mean, it's not a spoiler alert for anybody, I hope. That's an audience here. That's been going on for 30 and 40 and 50 years. We do it in certain countries. So people who fall down the rabbit hole on social media or in, on the dark web who think that they're, they're being influenced by a fellow American may well just be influenced by a, um, a, a, a Chinese spy or a Russian troll who wants Americans to hate each other and divide America because we're all, we are allegedly the only superpower, maybe with China, and the weaker we are, the better it is for the rest of our enemies. And so that's election interference. That's, inter that's interference by way of trying to get people influence, influencing who they vote for. That's not the fraud. The fraud that Donald Trump used to bang on the heads of state uh, secretaries of state in Georgia, election officials, elected officials, speakers of the House of various states and the battleground states, um, members of Congress, was the election was stolen. Votes for Biden should have been for me. There was software and hardware and, and a thumb drive in Georgia that flipped votes and Chinese bamboo ballots and all the other. You can, you can just spend the entire podcast listing, listing all of the crazy uh, QAnon theories. That was the fraud. Now you have this conflation in the middle of all their motions, which is we need to get to the bottom of Russian interference. And by the way, we think there was Russian interference in 2016, or as I said on my hot take, he finally did it. He finally admitted that Putin got him elected president. Um, and so that's different. And so he can go search for that needle in whatever haystack he wants, but that's not the case. That's not the indicted case, and that's not what's been brought against him. He wants to put on this new cape. He, he wears basically two capes. First Amendment man, I can do and say anything. As core political speech, because I'm the leading candidate for president. Wrong. That's a complete misstatement. Turns First Amendment law on its head. Secondly is, I am foreign interference protector man. That's all I was doing. I didn't want to stay in power any longer than I, than I had to. I was just looking for foreign interference and influence by the Chinese and all those other people. And that's all I was doing. And then he thinks that that defeats mens rea or criminal mind or criminal intent because he didn't have criminal mind. I didn't want to commit a crime. I wanted to solve a crime. I was undercover and all the other craziness. It, it's all, it makes for great reporting like we're doing here and pages and pages and pages of filing that you and I have to go through. But fortunately, Judge Chutkin, as the gatekeeper, I believe is going to sift through all of this and maybe grant a couple of things here and here and there, but she's not going to expand the prosecution team to include every prosecutor, the Department of Justice, wherever they may reside, who may have touched a file related to Jan 6th, right? And, and, and he's trying to argue that uh, the other interesting thing was trying to attack the prosecutors and arguing that they've taken inconsistent positions in the January 6th defendant cases, and those words should be used against the prosecutors here. And there is a body of law that says, Prosecutors can't take inconsistent positions across multiple cases that are somehow related. 
But they never said Donald Trump wasn't responsible for his own criminal conduct in those cases. They just told the court and the judge and the juries, and in sentencing, uh, they just said, it's no excuse that these people thought they were following their fearless leader and their cult leader in, in storming the Capitol. They can't say, I was ordered to do it. I just did what the guy said. And that Don't I get off for that? No, you don't get off for that. But, but that's different than um, they, they, since they can't blame Donald Trump, Donald Trump is absolved of criminal conduct because of the position the prosecutors took in that case. It, it's almost a head scratcher, but it won't be for, fortunately for Judge Chuck, you know, I think is going to very quickly with like a giant, you know, just blade, like whoosh, just cut down all of these arguments, give him a couple of things here and there and say, gentlemen, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to trial in March. You know, you got what you needed. You know, I'm satisfied with the government's representation that they've satisfied their, um, their Brady and Jiglio requirements and Jenks requirements in providing you all the material that you need. Uh, she may find interesting and do an oral argument and we'll report on it on a couple of the, you know, did the, the only one open for me is did the special counsel's office rely on investigate investigatory material of other agencies, the federal government, like Homeland security, postal service, um, and, and, uh, and things like that department of defense, as part of their indictment or their process? And should you include them in the definition of prosecutorial team to require them to turn over documents that reside in those different departments, offices, and computer servers or not? That for me is interesting. And I wanna see that debated and it will be, and we'll report on it, you know, right here on Legal AF and in hot takes that you, uh, Ben and, and I do during the week. Let's uh, wrap up the show, Karen, with, um, you leading a Manhattan DA. I'll just remind everybody, there is a case <laughs> that got um, first filed. It was the first out of the box. The Manhattan DA's office broke the ice, broke the glass ceiling. They indicted Donald Trump for something. It just happened to be for something that people were like scratching their head like, that's the one he got indicted on? <laughs> which was the Stormy Daniels hush money cover up business record fraud case, which is fine. You know what? Everybody... Everybody laughed and critiqued and criticized Alvin Bragg. You know, when you interviewed him, the, the Twitterverse went crazy uh, about him. But, you know, he got 17 count felony conviction against the Trump Organization for tax fraud. He put the CFO in jail uh, and, and convicted him of multiple counts of tax fraud. Um, and then he brought the one case now. And he still has time left on the clock to bring other cases as he's watching the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case. Uh, be tried out. So I, I have nothing to say that's in uh, that criticizes Alvin Bragg so far. But that case was on the books in March. We know there was a phone call between the staff and perhaps the judge, Judge Chutkin and Judge Rashawn, about trial dates because it was reported that there was by court staff. Um, and it's come up in the new proceedings. And it's still technically on the books to to conflict with Judge Chutkin's trial in March. What are you what do you know, Karen? What have you heard? What can you tell everybody about that? Uh, ben, our colleague, likes to call it the uh, not the zombie case, but the uh, the sleeper. It's the sleeper case that we we don't talk about enough, but could be the one that helps bring down Donald Trump. What do you know? Tell our audience. So that case, I like to call it not the Stormy Daniels case, but it was the first election interference case, right? This was him 
trying to suppress information from voters and you know becoming involved in election fraud. So, uh, but what's happening in that case is you know there's a placeholder, right? The the Judge Mershon is not moving his trial date. It's uh, I think it's March 24th of 2024, uh, and and. Some people will might say, well, how could that be if Judge Chutkin is supposed to go March 2nd, I think, or March 4th, whatever it is, right in the very beginning, the first week of March in 2024, uh, that won't be done. How could this case be scheduled? And what Judge Mershon, the state of, uh, the state court judge in the New York case is doing is saying, look, I'm, I'm no dummy. I know because I'm a judge that cases may or may not go all the time, right? It's some, just because it's scheduled for that date, it might not go. Cases get pushed. So if that case gets pushed, my case is going. So he's keeping it there, but it could get pushed if Judge Chutkin's case does happen. Um, what, what recently happened was the prosecutors at the Manhattan DA's office, my old office, uh, they filed their opposition to and response to uh, Trump's omnibus motion. And in New York state practice, the way we do it is a person gets arrested, they get arraigned, and then the case gets adjourned for a motion practice. And, and essentially what that is, is it's put everything you want to say in a motion now. In an, they call it an omnibus motion meaning it's everything you possibly want to do. You want to have statements suppressed and identification suppressed, evidence suppressed. You want, you know, arguments that uh, whatever whatever your arguments are, right, that, that you have as a defense attorney, put it all in one omnibus motion and then the prosecution responds and then you have hearings as to some of the issues if, if they warrant them and then you go to trial and that's kind of how it how it works. So, so Trump filed uh, his omnibus motion. And the prosecution filed a 99-page response. And I thought it was extremely powerful. And, you know, it had many, many, I think it had like six or seven uh, sections. And, you know, they, they really did a great job at calling out Trump where he, you know, was being disingenuous, like, like in one particular place, they said, you know, look, Trump, they said Trump is being disingenuous about the effect of this case on his campaign because um, he's saying, you know, that this case is like hurt, hurting him, his campaign. Yet they pointed out his frequent uh, public pronouncements that the indictment has actually strengthened his candidacy. And, you know, they also laid out because one of the, one of the issues and one of the things that um, Trump argued was that the statute of limitations has passed. And there's a five year statute of limitations in this case. But um, but uh, the case took, I think, six years and six plus years to 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 go forward. So, how is it possible that that happened, given the fact that you know it's not within the five years? And they did a great job saying, "Look, you know, yeah, the case was brought six years and forty four days um, from the time of, from the last time, the last." Um, the last entry in the false records. And so what the prosecution said was, look, we have to find at least 409 days that where the statute of limitations was paused or told is the word. Um, 
And, and they spelled it out. They said, look, you know, during that period of time, there were two major tolling periods. One was COVID, where um, Governor Cuomo uh, filed an executive order pressing pause on all statute of limitations in New York. And so that was a 412-day pause. And also, guess what? Trump was president for more than 409 days and uh, because he couldn't be apprehended. Why? Because he was continuously outside of the jurisdiction, being president of the United States, where he obviously can't get arrested, and he was busy doing other things. And so for those reasons, um, you know, it, the, the statute, the five-year statute is told. And also, there's also a constitutional speedy trial, meaning you can't unreasonably delay for constitutional reasons. And, and they spelled out, we didn't unreasonably delay bringing this case. We only learned about it in 2018 after Cohen pled guilty, right? And don't forget the Southern District of New York, the federal prosecutors in New York prosecuted Michael Cohen for this. And then it was a very public plea. And, and the Manhattan DA's office routinely learns about uh, cases in the news and opens up investigations. And that's what they did. And as soon as they opened up the investigation and the feds found out about it, they asked uh, the DA's office to to not to, to press pause and let them finish their investigation, which they did. And 10 months later, um, that's when the DA's office recommenced the investigation. And, and as part of the investigation, they were looking for tax and, finan and financial records, and they subpoenaed Mazers, the accounting firm for Trump. But this litigation took years or took time. It took, uh, I think it was two years, uh, almost two years, and didn't conclude until February of 2021. And, and the Manhattan DA's office had to go to the Supreme Court twice and argue in the Supreme Court twice to get those records. I even went to one of those arguments actually and watched uh, the argument in the Supreme Court. And they finally got the tax records. And right after that is when they brought the case that you just referenced, the 17 count conviction that happened. They brought that case and then they brought this case. So there was no delay and they were very clear about that. And they really did a good job, I thought, spelling all of that out. Um, the, the other kind of big picture issues uh, that they spelled out that I thought was really interesting was, um, was that um, uh, they, they basically said there wasn't sufficient evidence before the grand jury and, you know, that, that they didn't have enough evidence and that the records, you know, don't count as an enterprise, which is one of the elements of the crime. Um, but the, the major thing that they talked about, I think, was, was that um, falsification of a business record in New York is a misdemeanor, unless you're doing it to either commit or conceal a crime. And that's always been the rub in this case. People have kept saying, what crime? What crime? What crime was he either concealing or committing and to bump it to a felony? And, um, and you know, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, was a little bit, didn't commit didn't commit to what it was. He said, look, it could be this, it could be that, but we don't have to tell you, we don't have to commit, you don't even have to, the jury doesn't even have to agree. It's just like burglary in New York, which burglary is essentially um, a trespass, okay, which is a crime, you know, going, entering and remaining unlawfully somewhere. That's the elements of trespass and that's a misdemeanor. What makes it a felony is with the intention of committing a crime therein, okay? You're trespassing plus you have the intention of committing a crime. Most of the time when you charge burglary as a prosecutor, you have no idea what crime that guy was going to commit because half the time they get caught 
you know, in the act, right before they got to even complete, hopefully before they got to complete whatever horrible crime they were going to commit in there. It could be anything, right? And so, and so there's, you know, there's a case in New York, People versus Mackey, and, you know, it's a long-standing precedent that you, that you don't have to do that. And they were just saying, look, you know, they don't, they don't have to do it here either. And that's what they've always said. But in this motion, and the thing that I thought in this motion that was so compelling is they kind of committed right? They actually spelled out the crimes in detail of what crimes the defendant intended to commit or conceal. And, you know, it's very common. Uh, you would put your strongest argument first, right? Like that's how you always say, you call it primacy and recency, Popak. That's what you say. And that's a, a lawyer thing. And they, they're going to put their, their, um, most their strongest argument first. And what crime did they pick? They leaned into federal election uh, campaign or the federal election crime, right? Um, and and the reason that's significant is for a long time, they were people were debating, it doesn't count. A federal crime can't count as a bump up to a state crime. And rather than running away from it and saying, oh, it could be tax fraud that Michael Cohen was going to commit, you know, when they grossed up the wages, or it could be something else. They leaned into it and they said, no, it's a federal offense. That's the case. That's what they put first. They gave the argument for it. And then they said, you know, guess what? We looked through all our records. Many, many, many other times we have brought cases where a federal offense is the bump up. They And they argued the law and they ar argued the statute and they basically hit a home run and leaned into it. And I loved that they did that. I thought that was the best part of their briefing, which was to say that the defendant does not identify one person who is alleged to have committed the crimes that are in the indictment that was not indicted by the office. Um, in other words, anybody that had that set of facts or anything close to it, it has been indicted. And so you don't have selective prosecution. And particularly they said um, the, that the people, which is the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as prosecutors, regularly prosecute first degree falsifying business records. But you're so right about the leaning in. I always said, and we, you, you and you and, and Ben and we all, all three of us said, the bump up has to be the election fraud, that he did it for a reason. It wasn't covering it up because he didn't want Melania to know about the affair. He was doing it because he didn't want the American people to know about the affair, right? He didn't want to be brought down the way, you know, Bill Clinton almost lost his election when all these, uh, the series of women came out uh, from Paula Jones and and the other, per Jennifer Flowers and all the people during the campaign trail. People forget about all that. Um, and he didn't want that to happen to him. And that's why he, he tasked Michael Cohen and Alan Weisselberg and um, the guy that ran the National Enquirer, uh, Mr. Pecker, Mr. Picard, to make it go away. And that's the crime. And that's the rationale for it. And every judge that's taken a look at it, even even Alvin Hellerstein, the federal judge who got a look at the case for uh, who got a look at the case for a moment when he tried to remove it to federal court, said that's yes, no, that's the crime is the, the election cover up, or as you called it, election interference. So we have done a whirlwind tour and an update in all the different jurisdictions for civil and criminal cases involving Donald Trump. Some, some person asked me snarkily recently, is that all you guys do? Do do Trump? No. Answer that is no. Um, we are covering whatever we, we do curate the episode, but we, we cover whatever we think is important at the intersection of law, politics, and justice, and whoever that may be. I've done a fair amount so have you and so have Ben 
of hot takes on abortion rights, on constitutional rights, on voting rights, on the attempt to disenfranchise people and suppress the vote, um, on a woman's right to choose. Um, we don't shy away from these stories. You know, we're not, you know, we're not just here to like, oh, how many views did we get? Oh, great. You know, you know, you know, our popularity does help keep us on the air. <laughs> it is right, as in any business model, any anything on television or YouTube, but we take on the hard cases and the hard matters. So if you like what we're doing and you've, if you've been with us, we've had a big group with us tonight. We're number three or four in the world on YouTube live tonight. Welcome back. If you have no idea, you just stumbled into legal AF today. It happens. Welcome. This is what we do Wednesday, Saturdays, 8 PM Eastern time. And then we do hot takes the leaders of legal AF about every hour at the intersection that we've been talking about all night. And if you want to know how to support what we do here, we are an independent media company, meaning we don't take outside investors. We're grassroots. Somebody wrote in a chat recently, will you open your books to your business model? To which I wrote, oh, yeah, as soon as you do it. I, mean, <laughs> I don't understand what, what the problem with being independent means. I mean, would you rather us not be? We are. And so the way to support us is really viewer audience driven and listener driven for our podcast that's on the audio platforms. Watch us here. The, the, the thumbs up is, isn't just fun. It helps us, helps the algorithms, keeps the ratings high, keeps us in the content on the air, plain and simple. Then on the audio podcast that'll drop in a few hours, go pick it up there. Free. It's free to subscribe to the Midas Touch YouTube channel. Help them get to 2 million because that's really important to what we're doing here. And that's free. Go listen to us for free on the podcast. And if you want to spend any money, you can. There's Patreon to support the Midas Touch Network. We might roll out a Patreon come the new year in uh, for Legal AF people. Um, there's T-shirts you can buy at store.midastouch.com. Uh, I, I don't know why I always stumble on that. There's some If you want to fly the flag of, my, of Midas Touch and Legal AF, there you go. There are some opportunities to do that. But these are the ways that you can support us and then we've got our sponsors because that's we have to have a business model. Otherwise, what are we doing? So that, you know, we have interesting products. We pick them, we curate them, um, and we like them. We try them, we get them, and we talk about them on shows like this. So supporting our sponsors is important as well. So until the next series of hot takes, until the next Legal AF, which is this Saturday, I'm Michael Popak, and we have... Karen, introduce yourself again. Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Yes, and this is Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty and the Legal AFers. See you next week. Mm -hmm.